The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itocoaching.com. ITO Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITO coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there is always someone available to answer your questions and to help adjust the training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you to chat about your goals and to find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at bluepineappletravel.com. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They are all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The agents at Blue Pineapple Travel love to help people plan their travel. Their goal is to match you with the trip that you want. Whether you are looking for relaxation or adventure, traveling solo or with a group, inside the U.S. or abroad, they are there to match you to the trip for you. Blue Pineapple Travel will help you curate all the travel information out there to create the exact vacation that you want. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by SlayRx. You can find them at www.slayrx.com. SlayRx is a sports nutrition company that makes products for athletes, team sports, and anyone that trains or works outdoors. SlayRx was founded by an endurance athlete and University of Georgia food scientist who was unhappy with the choices he was offered on course in long course triathlons. He started making his own mixes, and now you can enjoy those same mixes. SlayRx offers differing levels of electrolytes in their hydration products, and you can get them with or without calories. You can either take their online test at SlayRx.com, or you can be tested in their laboratory to determine the exact amount of liquid and electrolytes that you need to be consuming while racing. In addition to hydration products, SlayRx offers fueling products like their product Diesel, which is available with or without the optimum level of caffeine that is scientifically proven to legally enhance performance while limiting GI upset and diuretic impact. If you're looking for an alternative to gels, try SlayRx Spark Plug, a Pop Rocks-like powder that combines the same electrolytes that are in their other products, encapsulated caffeine, and quickly absorb carbohydrates. It comes in a plastic tube so it can be carried while running, and it will work to enhance and fuel your alertness, general happiness, and performance. Remember, tell them the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast sent you by using the coupon code PLEASANT2019 at checkout on the website, and you'll get 10% off of anything that you purchase there. That's www.slayerx.com and Pleasant 2019. Test Don't Guess with SlayerX. Thanks to all of our sponsors for helping us to bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. everybody, welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slayer X. This is George Darden, I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. This is Michelle Frank, and I'm an endurance athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. And a sports fanatic and enthusiast and all-around guru, right? We need a better intro, I guess. We do need a better <laughs> intro for you, Michelle. If we're going to make you a permanent part of this podcast, which we are by popular demand. Whoa. Um, I am, uh, we're gonna have to figure out something better to say here. So anyway, Michelle, glad you're back here. Thanks for having me. Um, we are going to talk about New York City Marathon. Yeah. We're going to talk about Shalane Flanagan, which I'm going to let you take the lead on because everybody knows how I feel about Shalane Flanagan, but I'm softening. But 
I think I've had a lot to do with that softening over the last two and a half years. Well, fair. And I think Shalane Flanagan has a lot to do with that softening, too, to be honest. That's also fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, And and we're going to talk about Vaporfly shoes. We are. So we've talked about Vaporfly shoes one time on the show already. We had an entire episode dedicated to it, but they have moved back into the center of everybody's attention after the brilliant runs by Kazguy and... Kipchoge, yeah, that guy, uh, <laughs> uh, last month. And so, so so we need to talk about him a little bit more. But let's talk about New York City Marathon first, right? Let's talk about it. It is still going on right now. It is Sunday uh, before 1 o'clock. The winners have finished. Most of the folks that you and I are tracking have finished. But uh, the New York City Marathon's a trip. You know, it doesn't start till later on. And so if you're in one of the later waves, it starts at almost 11 o'clock, and you run six or seven hours. You're there all day. Yeah, you're there until after dark. Literally, you're finishing after dark. And yeah, then... I mean, the last finishers don't come in until close to midnight. So oh, Really? I think so. Dang. That's a long time to be out there, man. And then, mind you, too, it's so hard to get to the starting line down on Staten Island. So you start your day at 4 a.m. You spend all that time on the buses trying to get there and everything else like that. You wait in your corral. You run through every borough, which is fantastic. You finish after dark. And, and now you... everybody who was going to put in for next year's lottery <laughs> just decided to find another fall race because you made it sound so logistically enticing. And it's worth every, every inconvenience and penny. Okay. Um, it's a cool race. I mean, and, but it's it's one of those races too, though, that you, I always say it's worth the hype. And I've talked about it many times on this podcast, how cool it is. And you forget about how cool it is. And then you watch it like you and I both did this morning. And it's it's still cool, man. It's a great race. Um, and it lived up to the hype once again, both in terms of, of weather and in terms of, of competition. It was There were great races to watch, right? There were great races to watch. We had a near-perfect day. Um, a lot of awesome women on the start line. We, mm-hmm. you know, as an American, we're hoping to see another American on the podium, but um, Des Linden did her thing and came in sixth place again. Mm-hmm. She looked really happy at the finish, um, mm-hmm. so she was the top American but it looked like a great race up front between Jeff Koskai and Mary Katani and third place uh, Aga, actually. So yep. it was fun to follow. Right on, right on. Deslin and Kellen Taylor almost caught her there, and the two of them finished sixth and seventh. Um, they were both around 226.45. Uh, the winner, Jocelyn Jepkoske, ran 222.38, so they were about four minutes down from her. Um, Jocelyn Jepkoske, world record holder in the half marathon, yeah, I mean, pretty impressive. First We've, ever marathon. First ever marathon. To run a debut marathon in New York and to win the New York City Marathon in your debut marathon is, I don't know that anyone's ever done that. Yeah. Um, so so but, somebody has won it in their debut before. They said that at the finish line. It's, okay. It's been a long time. It's been like 20 years since somebody won it in their, in their, in their debut. Yeah. But, it's pretty amazing to watch her run. She she runs a little bit differently than Mary mm-hmm. Katani, but... For sure. Um. You know, it was pretty amazing to watch her come off of that half marathon world record and kind of just stay back over the bridge. They started mm-hmm. pretty conservatively, but once she went to the front with Mary Katani and um, she just never let up and you kind of never know what someone's going to do when they've never covered the 26.2 mile distance before, right. but she really had it in her today. Um, she looked, you know, she looked great through the park and the commentators sort of indicated that maybe she was falling apart, but right. I never saw that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anytime someone can run New York, you know, and drop Mary Katani with 5K left, uh, she's got a lot 
you know, a lot to look forward to in the marathon. Right so. on, right on. So let's talk about both those things. Okay, three things I want to say. First of all, you mentioned Mary Gatani and dropping Mary Gatani. Uh, just to remind everybody, Mary Gatani has done the New York City Marathon eight times, and she has finished on the podium eight times. Uh, she's won four times. She's finished second place now twice, and she's finished third place twice. So one of the great all-time marathoners, maybe perhaps one of the top two all-time greatest New York City marathoners. Um, and so, so for Joplin, Jess Koska to run away from her was, uh, was, was super impressive there. Yeah, she came in wanting the win. She was very clear that she had pretty much spent all year preparing uh, for her fifth win in New York City. But it's got to be the day. And she had a lot of trouble really at the halfway mark. There was kind of looked like she was spitting back up some liquids that she was trying to take in. So um, I'd say she hung in there pretty well, like she always does. She's a fighter. But when you have somebody with Chapkowski's strength and speed up there and having a good day, it just wasn't Mary's day. Yeah, for sure. And and let's be clear on it too, though. Jep Kosgai missed the course record by seven seconds, which is unbelievable. Which which makes it that much more incredible. So so for Mary Katani to lose to somebody who just barely missed the fastest time ever run on that course, I mean that's there, there's no real shame in that, right? No, and that course record is what sixteen years old. Sixteen years old. Yeah. So they were both gunning for it. I mean, Mary wanted to win. She wanted the course record. It was a perfect day. But um, you don't really know what's going to happen until you get going. And I think all of us who have covered that distance or more kind of know exactly how she was probably feeling once she realized it just wasn't going to be her day. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. For sure. And Jeb Koskai, so, so like Michelle just mentioned, the commentators were saying in the last 10K, in the last 5K, they were looking at the two of them and like, Jeb Koskai looks kind of rough and she's never run this distance before. She was kind of squinting and she was snarling and stuff like that. And Jeb Koskai is a... is kind of a burlier, stronger looking runner. Um, whereas Katani is, is is smaller and smoother looking when she runs. And so they're like, Katani looks really, really good. But nonetheless, Jeb Koska was running away from her. Yeah. Um, and when they were saying that, I mean, we used to live right outside that part of the park. It's They're going up a small hill. Yeah. When they were saying that, and you can't see it on the TV. Mm-hmm. It looks flat, but that's, mm-hmm. that's tough. It, mm-hmm. You know, the last 20 mile, 23 of a marathon or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but I never thought she looked as bad as the commentators seem to think she For, looked, so. I, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, the, the expression on her face was definitely showing the pain of the effort, but you're in the last 5K of a marathon. Um, it's worth mentioning, you know, we've talked about her on, on this podcast before. Like we said, she's the world record holder in the half marathon. When she ran that half marathon, she ran a 10K world best, a 15K world best, and a 20K world best all on the way to that half marathon world best, which is pretty incredible and so it's not like she came out of nowhere to win her first ever debut marathon here and and missed the course record in new york by seven seconds still an amazing performance though um it's also worth saying that she's now run two races in the united states jeff koska has and she's won them both <laughs> i'm sure she'll be coming back for a third <laughs> so right on right on um so trying to keep that 100 percent record there um also worth while we're talking about the women's race here sarah hall yeah so you know we were gonna watch this quick turnaround both by Sarah Hall um, who ran a 222 in Berlin for a four minute PR. She tends to be more of a serial racer. She was going to come back and run New York and then take a little bit of downtime before she builds up for the trials in February. Mm-hmm. Uh, she started out with the lead group. You know, they went pretty slow over. Actually, she dropped back before as they went over the bridge and then she came roaring back once they got over the bridge after a mile, mm-hmm. ran with the lead group. Um, but yeah, ended up not finishing um and i think that if we were looking at who was going to make a better turnaround between she and roberta groner everybody probably would have assumed that she would have been able to recover better because 
Berlin, you know, weather-wise and the way that she ran didn't seem nearly as taxing as running in 100 degrees in Doha. Right. <laughs> um, but Roberta Groner had a great day, and Sarah Hall didn't finish, so. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Hall dropped out pretty early. Um, I was, think she dropped was, out at mile eight. Yeah, um, yeah. It was before the 10-mile mark, I'm pretty sure there. So we, we got some conflicting information from the tracker there, but it certainly, I mean, the commentators were saying she dropped out at eight. So, you know, she she did, she did won the 10-mile U.S. championship only a week after Berlin, um, which seems to suggest that, you know, she was recovering okay. And then there was a New York Times uh, article this week about Sarah Hall and right. about how, you know, her body's so good and she bounces back and she knows herself so well and all that sort of thing. And then she drops out. <laughs> yeah, I wonder two things. I wonder if the 10-miler was the big mistake. If mm. she could, you know, in hindsight, if she would have just taken yeah. that week, really recovered, shut it down, instead of gone out and tried to run that big 10-mile race. Because she ran and she won, but she she held off her competition. Yeah. Um, and then there's also part of me that wonders, you know, if you don't feel good, um, and you know you don't feel good, but you need your appearance fee, mm-hmm. do you just show up and, and do what you can for as long as you can and then and kind of drop out? So it'll be interesting to see what she, you know, how she feels after the race. But, yeah. Um, yeah, good point. I agree. And it'll be interesting to hear. I mean, they'll talk to the media. For you sure. Know, and then so, so we'll hear what I have to say. Just to be clear, are you suggesting that she might have known coming into the race that, hey, maybe this whole zero racing thing isn't really working for me, but they're giving me an appearance fee, so I'm going to show up and get it? We Is never, that what you're saying here on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast? I mean, the Michelle? New York Roadrunners and, you know, <laughs> ASICs. I mean, we're never going to see a disclosure on what their appearance fees are and what they have to do in order to receive them. But I think we know from enough talk about this historically that showing up and starting the race typically at least guarantees a large percentage of the appearance fee. Sure. And, I mean, this is Sarah Hall's job. You know, she's right. a professional. So this could be one of the problems with professional road racing um there's many people out there that will say that it is but you know can you hold it against her if she knew it wasn't going to be her day but she showed up and started and did what she could i don't think so i don't think so either and i think that's the that's the nature of of being a professional endurance athlete is that you sometimes you have to make decisions and do things that are really ill-advised um and so so maybe maybe that's the situation for her i don't know one way or another i do think that um this whole oh I'm just gonna run every single race and just do all these and line up two gigantic marathons 35 days after one another and run a 10 miler in the middle is just I, I just don't think it's a bad idea and I, and I think this at least in in for now I I think that this bears that out but we'll I agree see. I still we've seen her run back to back marathons like this you know four to six week spread I'm gonna go with the 10 miler did her in. I think it's so. actually, I, I think that's an excellent point. If you think about like, okay, so where is the threshold? Where is the threshold past which you cannot recover? Um, she might not have been there when she crossed the finish line in Berlin, but she may well have crossed that threshold yeah. a week later in Michigan. And My so that, experience. I think that's an excellent point. You know, one week after a marathon, I'm barely walking still. Yeah. So um, I guess she needs to just really kind of hone it in and recover now and then get a good solid 10 weeks in before February. So right she's on. definitely a contender for the Olympic team. There's no doubt about that. I agree. I think it's all going to depend on how she recovers and, and does her build up for February. I agree. I agree. Um, speaking of women, the women's wheelchair race was won by Manuela Shar. This is her ninth straight world marathon major win. Yeah, we've really seen a change of tides, you know, in both the women's and men's chair races. But um, whereas Shar spent years coming in second to, um, to Tatiana McFadden, mm-hmm. we've definitely, you know, seen the tides turn um, she had a great race today. It wasn't even close. You know, we saw 
kind of a race in Chicago for second and third um, between the Americans. But again, she's up front for that also. So she's just dominating. Um, She's got a whole new level in her. Yeah. It's, It's fun to watch the chair races. Yeah, no, it's it's super fun to watch the chair races. It's like watching. It's almost like watching bike races. Um, they're shorter than bike races. It's better than watching bike races. <laughs> <laughs> they're shorter. The scenery is not as great as in bike races. That's but true. <laughs> but because of the drafting and stuff, it's it's a very similar. Um, it's a very similar strategy. Um, kind of goes into play. But but to win nine straight world marathon majors, I mean, to to do the most competitive wheelchair marathons in the world and to win nine of them. Um, and so I, can we even think about how far back? So, so she's won every single one of them, obviously, this year. It goes into the beginning of last year. What would have been nine ago? Six. I don't know. We'll I'm going to let you do this. Yeah. I'm, this I'm, is not I'm, real math. So <laughs> I'm off the hook. This is not math. This is more like history, actually, which is what I'm supposed to be good at. Um, and so, so yeah, anyway, um, let's actually segue there to the to the male's uh, uh, wheelchair race there. Daniel Romanchuk, 21 years old, wins in 132-24. Wins by one second. Yeah. Totally different race, I right? I feel like these guys always have to take it to the line. Yeah. It's just, it's mesmerizing. It's like, it's gripping. Um, so, yeah, totally different race. Mm-hmm. Um, right down to the wire, but great to see a 21-year-old dominate. Um, yep. I mean, he's got years and years, you know, that we're going to be watching him out there. So Right on, right on. Daniel Romantuck, uh, he's won the Preach to Road Race a couple of times as well. And he so, has. so he, he's, a, he's a familiar name around here. Um, but, yeah, clearly he's got... He's got a lot of strength there in the in the in the final kick, so he's able to, to push through and, and, and win in that final second there. Um, and then the men's race, uh, the men's foot race, Jeffrey Cam War, who I would say was a favorite. Well, one of the favorites going in. Definitely one of the favorites. Yeah, yeah. Along with Elisa DeCisa, who was a defending champion and who just won the world championship not too long ago. But unfortunately, um, he also did not finish. He dropped out. Yeah. So. Um, the back to backs uh, are hard. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. But you know, and, and we you kind of mentioned this offhand. Let's go ahead and mention it. Like, let's just make sure everybody was clear on that. Roberta Groner, who we talked about before, who um, was the United States top finisher at that melting, that that brutal middle-of-the-night suffer fest that was the World Championship Marathon in Doha. Um, she finished in 2.30 today. So yeah, two, min- two minutes off of that. her two minutes off of her PR. Um, yeah, she said that's a great performance. She said she taken three days off after Doha. She felt really good. Remember, she ran in Doha with hydration. She carried a handheld yeah. the whole time. Yeah. She said she played it really smart, um, felt she recovered really well, got back up to a solid three weeks and, and big workouts, and felt that if it was her day, she could run a PR today. Um, definitely wanted to be in the top 10. I, I would have to think she would be happy with a 230 yeah. on a day like today, especially having a great experience uh, coming in sixth in the world at the World Championships. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see you know what she does also in February. Mm-hmm. Um, she's in her 40s. She's got three kids, single mom, full-time job. But she could also really contend on the day for a spot on the team. So I'm a fan. You think we should reach out to Roberta Groner and see if she'll come on the podcast? Right after you get Jerry Schumacher on the podcast. <laughs> Jerry Schumacher might be a little bit harder to get. But so Re- 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 Roberta Groner, maybe she's just slightly enough below the radar that she's willing to come on our little podcast. She might be. I've heard her on several podcasts lately. Um, Have you? Yeah. Oh, okay. She's Dang. out there a bit. So. Okay. okay. Maybe she's not so under the radar as I thought. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, I think she'd be fun to talk to. So go for it. How does she sound on podcasts? Um, the same on every podcast. But I mean, she sounds good though, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's got All a great right. story. Um you know, re- really systematic, works with Steve Magnus as her coach, mm-hmm. um, long history of running and then a huge break, maybe a 17 year break and then right. got back into it. And while she was having three kids after she had three kids. Right. Um, but, and then just had some breakthrough marathons and, um, you know, she knows her time is limited. She's in her early forties. She doesn't have a shoe contract. She's 
said she would like it if it was the right fit, but she's not going to, you know, <laughs> just take a contract if, oh yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> just take a contract for the heck of it. Um, so she seems to be really, uh, you know, really well kind of even keel in her life. So it's fun yeah. to watch her race. Right on, right on. And so before anybody calls me out on this, I can appreciate the fact that I have I have criticized Sarah Hall for, for zero racing and for trying to back up too quickly. And then I'm talking about how great it is where Bernard Groner did it. I recognize there's a little bit of double speak going on there. I recognize there's a little bit of a double standard I'm applying perhaps. But but my appreciation for Roberta Groner has more to do with the fact that she, she has such a broader context in which she's trying to work. Yeah. All right, all right. So anyway, that was a digression about Roberta Groner there. So so back to the men's race, though. Uh, Jeffrey Camor, like we said, one of the favorites, world record holder in the half marathon. He won the race in 2017, finished third last year. I think so. Yeah. Um, behind uh, Shura Katata and Lisa DeCisa, who had that, that brilliant like sprint finish last year that was so fast. Um, um, he ran. He won in 208.13. Um Pretty impressive race there. Uh, from mile 22, he ran a 4:38. Mile 23, he ran a 4:36. Mile 24, which has that vicious uphill Hill. in the first half of the the uphill, he runs a 4:40, um, and that gave him a gap. Um, and he just kind of held it. Um, the, the commentators were like, "So amazing! He's just so in control. He just put everybody away." He really didn't. <laughs> um, Albert Career, who was second, uh, was only about uh, 22 or 23 seconds behind him at the finish, uh, and he was always in the picture really throughout. Um, a citizen runner, they kept calling him. Yeah, um, they did. A guy without his name on his bib, Guillermo Bekele Gebre, uh, number 443, um, so not a pro, uh, finished third. Yeah, it's funny. They don't like when, you know, the commoners <laughs> come up into the elite field and who's this guy on camera and the broadcast team has, you know, spent months preparing for the people that are going right. to be in the lead and then they suddenly have no idea who this numbered runner is. Right. Um, but it's always great, you know, to see somebody that's not an elite field be able to compete with the elites on the day. I think it makes it exciting for the sport. For sure, for sure. And it, it looked like he was going to get second. Um Albert Career hung on better than it looked like he was going to be able to through Central Park there, but uh, only two seconds behind him was, was Guillermo Bekele Gebre, number 443. Um, guy PR'd by seven minutes. It's pretty legit. Um, yeah, I mean, he ran 208 also. Um, so he had run 215, 216, something like that. And so, which is obviously a brilliant time, but not quite enough. Certainly not enough to get you, Into you know, the elite an, field in New York. Exactly. Um, and so they, they gave him a number, though. You know, he had a qualifying number. And so so he started up there in that, that front wave um, and ran his two seconds out of second place. So, yeah, super impressive. He can impressive. probably get into any world marathon major now and get his name on a bib. I think he is. Well, he, he's, he's now Olympic qualified. Okay. Uh, he's met the Olympic trials quali- or Olympic qualifying standard uh, by finishing third in, in a world marathon major. So, yeah. Jared Ward was the first American, finished sixth. Jared Ward looked great. Um, you know, he wanted to contend for the podium. I heard him on a podcast just a few days ago, uh, Road to the Olympic Trials, and he said he felt great. He had had the best buildup, and he thought he was in the best shape of his life. So he finished six, which is what he finished last year, but he ran about 90 seconds faster yeah. this year. Yeah. So I've got to think he'll be really happy with that. Um, yeah. He's super healthy right now. Again, sort of like Sarah Hall. I mean, he's just got to shut it down and recover and be ready to go in February because he is for sure a favorite uh, for the Olympic team next summer, and he could contend, you know, for an Olympic medal really if it's could be anyone's day out there. So right on. Um, it's great to see him run well. Right on, I agree. He, you'll recall, was also in the top ten at Boston um, and ran two oh nine there, didn't he? 
Big PR. Yeah, ran 209 there, so it runs 210 here. Um, he actually said, and I thought this was interesting, he said that he chose to run Boston and then New York, and then, of course, you have the trials in Atlanta, and then hopefully for him, the, the Olympics next summer. He said he wants to run some of these tougher courses where it's all about competing and trying to win as opposed to just kind of going out and getting a lightning-fast time. I think that's really smart. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what we're going to see at the Olympic trials here in Atlanta in February. Yeah, Nobody agree. who goes out blazing fast and tries to race the clock is likely to make the Olympic team just because of the course. Right. One thing that Jared Ward also said was when people were questioning whether he was going to do a fall marathon, you know, he gave two really explicit reasons for why he wanted to do New York. And he said, one, um, he, you know, is the breadwinner for his family right. and he needs to show up and make his money. But the big thing, which I think is really interesting um, and really makes a lot of sense, is he felt that if he didn't run a fall marathon, he would burn out before the Olympic trials in February. Because totally. this gave yeah. him, you know, kind of a stacked schedule, a place to peak, time to recover, and then kind of rebuild again versus just a long, slow build with no big time to peak and recover um, yeah. and to get that kind of fitness into the body. Hopefully it would be a good day and he did have a good day. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think this played out exactly the way he wanted it to with the ultimate goal being to qualify for Tokyo next summer. Right on. And you know, maybe that's what Sarah Hall, maybe that's what she has in mind, you know, because I, cause I can appreciate what you're saying about if, if I choose a target that's too far away, then I'm going to lose focus and I'm going to burn out and all that sort of thing. Like if you say, I'm going to do a marathon a year from now and I'm going to start training right now for a marathon a year from now and you put nothing really on the counter between now and then, it kind of makes it hard to get up early tomorrow morning. Yeah, you know it's, what I mean? very, it's or, a very long period yeah. of time. And when do you recover and right. you know what type of fitness does your body need to absorb during that recovery? Um, so I think Sarah Hall would have been way better off than she ended up being today if she just had not raced that 10 miler a week yeah. after Berlin. I think you're so. right. I think you're right. Yeah, I, I, I just, I, maybe that's what she has in mind. Though. Maybe that's why she's such a zero racer is just because she doesn't think that she can really maintain her focus for more than two months at a time. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm totally putting words in her mouth here, and we'll have to see what she has to say here in the, in the, in the post-race stuff, if she has anything to say. Um, yeah, so. it'll be interesting how much she, you know, information she gives us. Yeah, right on, right on. All right, so New York City Marathon, great as always. Uh, are we going to talk about Shalane Flanagan? She would be a worthwhile segue here. She'd be a great segue. Um, so, so she'd be a good segue since she's a, no, a former champion. The other way we could potentially segue would be to say, hey, you know, Sarah Hall, we were just talking about her. Ryan Hall's been talking a lot of trash about people's shoes. Let's he talk has. about the shoes. But <laughs> I don't know. That one feels a little bit more petty. So, yeah, let's talk about Shalane Flanagan. Let's talk about it. Um, In the commentary booth today at the New York City Marathon, 2017 Marathon, New York City Marathon champion. Yeah, we uh, found out, you know, a few weeks ago, she posted uh, two really heartfelt posts on her social media that she officially was announcing her retirement. She won New York City in 2017. She came back last year, was able to make the podium. For sure, one of, you know, the most dominant female distance runners the United States has ever seen. But after 15 years as a professional, uh, a, a big time. knee surgery, you know, last summer, um, and possibly needing the same surgery on the other knee, she's decided to call it quits from professional running. Um, but we will see her, like we saw today, in the commentator um and also she's going to transition full-time to a coach with right. the bowerman track club right right bowerman track club who's the head coach over at the bowerman track club <laughs> maybe this guy jerry schumacher oh jerry schumacher the guy that you're obsessed with oh, okay that guy um so I'm yeah i'm just so, obsessed with really good coaches so uh, you know <laughs> fair fair which is the only reason why i was able to talk you into coming on this podcast <laughs> hey just kidding um so yeah 
she's going to be working with the Bowman Track Club, which she's been a part of with Jerry Schumacher for the last little while here. Um, and they, they say that she has taken on kind of a mentoring role inside of there. Um, and so, so being a coach should be a pretty easy transition for her. Yeah, we, you know, there was a great article after she won New York City in 2017, and I actually went back to it this morning to reread it in the New York Times by Lindsey Krauss, and they just labeled it the Shalane effect, um, and basically every single training partner that she's ever had, she's made four Olympic teams, and she had a training partner for 2012 and different ones for 2016. Um, each time they've made the teams with her, yeah. you know, she trained with Emily Enfeld and Emily walked away from 2015 world championships with a bronze medal in the 10,000 meters. We saw that historic finish at the Rio trials where Amy Craig tried to help her along as she suffered from heat exhaustion. And then in total, you know, we have 11 of her her teammates that have made it to the Olympics right alongside her. Um, So I think she just elevates them. She's a little bit older than most people out there. She's got the experience. She's dominated. She shows up to win. Um, you know, and she's shown people that you have to kind of put everything in it to see what you might get out of it. And people follow that. So right on, right on. Very good. Um, she said in the, uh, the article that she had just earlier this week in the New York times, they were, they were talking to her about various things. The, the, it came out on the 30th. So, so earlier this week, but the, the headline was about you know, Shalane Fling and not surprised about Salazar, which and it said nothing about yeah. had one question about Salazar, right? And she and, and her response was, "Well, I was surprised and not surprised." And it's like, okay, and and that was the headline. So so don't be thrown off by that headline. Go back and take a look at it. But she did say that that she's looking forward to to taking on more of a mentoring role. She said that she um, uh, is hoping to run some workouts with the athletes that she's coaching. Um, and then I thought it was very interesting, and I know that if Patrick was here, he would say this was probably the most interesting part to him. He said that that she wants to be able to keep on running when she's 50 and 55 years old and stuff like that. And and she felt like if she tried to squeak out another year or two of 130-mile weeks, that that would push her into not only a career-ending place, but also a running injury-ending place to where she wouldn't be able to go out and jog with her kids one day or whatever. Um, and I, can, I, I have respect for that. Yeah, she was really clear about, you know, her love for running, dominating the decision to retire. Um, she also said, if you go back, Sports Illustrated has kind of an exit interview by Chris Havis, and mm. he did also a podcast with her. Um, on the podcast, not actually in the print piece, she said that her goal is to become a personal pacer for her teammates. She'd right. love to pace, you know, Shelby Houlihan to some more American records and things like that. I guess it'll all depend on whether she gets the second knee surgery, how she recovers from that. But um, she's out there running a little bit now, but you know, we're not going to see a comeback from her. So that's pretty official, but it'll be great to see her in the space. um, If she does anything in the world of coaching, like she has, you know, in the world of being a professional runner, then she's probably destined to be, I don't know, you know, one of the best professional coaches out there. Right on, right on. Um, So yeah, we'll see. Um, I can't help but suddenly just kind of parallel popped into my head. You remember Alberto Salazar won some Boston Marathons, New York City Marathons, then eventually became a coach and mentor, and that didn't work out so well. So hopefully How she won't be. How are you even making this comparison? <laughs> I'm just trying to get under your skin. Um, I mean, she went to the University of North Carolina, and everybody knows that they don't really, you know, mentor really upstanding people there with the, the exception fact that you with the exception of Michael Jordan. Had to say that. Is, <laughs> this is your complex. Your favorite ACC school. So I, I, I totally have a complex about it. And so so yeah, if anybody's wondering why I'm not a gigantic Shalane Flanagan fan, it is entirely down to the fact that she went to UNC and she talks about it all the time. It has nothing to do with the fact that she went to UNC. It's that she always 
talks about going to UNC. Tar Heel this, Tar Heel Correct. That. <laughs> well, maybe you should talk more about Georgia Tech. I mean, maybe you're just jealous or I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know that I'm jealous necessarily, but 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 certainly there's, yeah, she talks a lot about being a Tar Heel. I, I shouldn't, but I do though, you know? I just, I don't know, it's tough. You have to look at her as somebody who has devoted her life to the sport, who until really the last two or three that years. gross blue color. Oh. She only wore that for four years, and she only lost three cross-country races in her whole tenure at North Carolina. I mean, that was amazing. She has two NCAA cross-country titles from there, and she went on and just dominated. So, and no drama. You know, we didn't we didn't know much about her really until the last, I'd say, two or three years when she really kind of made more of a presence on social media. Um, and I think you've got to give it to people like her and, and Des Linden, really, and the people that just put their head down and do the work and just continually improve year after year. Um, she's no doubt elevated women's distance running in this country. I mean, you can, you know, there are people that came before her, but she has carried that torch for several years now. I agree with everything you just said. I just wish that somebody who had she's gone always gonna any be a place UNC except alum. for UNC <laughs> oh my okay. had done it. Any post-secondary institution in the United States, except for UNC, I wish she had gone to any other one. <laughs> if she'd well. gone to Wisconsin or Stanford or Michigan, that would have been fantastic if she went to Michigan. Um, or, or UMass. Really I mean, she, she, she's from, or, or, or Boston College or, or, you know, she's from that, you know, that area. Any, she wasn't any place else. a standout high school runner. She wasn't going to go to the Stanford. She wasn't, you know, I mean, she wasn't this, she barely made, did she ever make Foot Locker even? Uh, no, she had bad so she races to, at the regionals. Okay, so yeah. she went to UNC because that's who gave her a scholarship. Fair. It's a beautiful yeah. school. I almost went to UNC. It's not that beautiful. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I have a Tar Heel rowing shirt, which they sent oh, me on a, uh, for a recruiting trip, and it's oh. on a quilt. And every time I look at it, I think about taking a picture and sending it to oh. you because I know it would make you vomit. Horrible. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I had I ran a ten thousand meters on their track one time. You know what color their track is? I'm sure it's Tar Heel blue. It's that Tar Heel blue color. And the entire time, I was fighting back vomit. <laughs> Okay. Well, you seem to have survived, but um. I seem to have survived. I love, love Shalane Flanagan, except for the fact that she went to UNC, and I really wish she'd just gone anywhere else. So, when when I get the opportunity to rewrite history, that's the history I'm going to rewrite. Um, all right, enough about that. We've talked for like two or three minutes out of the limited time that you have as a mom and I have as a dad to be talking about this stuff, and so we probably need to move on. Um, all right. Speaking of things that people have been arguing a lot about. <laughs> Actually, you want a great Shalane segue to the Vaporfly? That she she was one of the first people wearing them in 2017 when she, she won was, the New York City Marathon. Okay. She wore the prototype in the 2016 Olympic trials. Where she ran terribly, Angeles, actually. Well, she didn't run where terribly. Where she ran terribly, but hold on. She got that third place spot by 65 seconds. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just keep that in mind uh, when we go into more detail about, right. you know, the proven benefits of the shoe that uh, the entire endurance world is talking about. This is New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Economist, Business Insider. There is nobody out there who I think can miss, you know, the most recent um, uproar about the Nike Vaporfly, 4%, Nextfly, and now the Alphafly. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. Fourth place at that race? Kara Goucher. Kara Goucher wearing a pair of Skechers. Wearing Skechers. So. Yeah, right on. And that's why I know the time differential because I'm a, you know, till death do us part Kara fan. Um, <laughs> and I happen to have watched that race literally from five feet away. You um, did. So anyway. And then, and then you ran the marathon the next day, didn't you? 
which was the worst decision <laughs> I've ever made. Um, so. All right. So let's talk about this paradigm shifting shoe, the, the Vaporfly and then the Alphafly. So let, let's just kind of catch everybody up real quick here just to, to make sure everybody's on the same page. First thing to say is that the Vaporfly 4% was the first iteration of this shoe. And it came out as part of the Breaking 2 project. A few people were prototyping, as you said, in 2016, in the Olympic trials and the Olympics. Um, really went on sale in 2017. Correct. Um, and then the next generation, a uh, second generation of the Vaporfly 4% came out. They, they changed the upper, didn't really change the structure of it. This year, earlier this year, the Vaporfly Next% percent came out, which we talked a little bit more about this podcast, which... And Nike says in their tests have been shown to, to, to even have more of a uh, efficiency promotion properties or tendencies uh, than the 4% did. Um, and then Elliot Kipchoge in the Ineos 159 Challenge when he went 159.40 was wearing a shoe that was based on some of the same ideas um, but was called the Alpha Fly, um, which was is not something that's commercially available um, and probably won't be actually. Um, but anyway, what were you going to say about it? Um, yeah, I think that everybody wanted to know what Kipchoge was wearing. Uh, we had seen him run in what we now know is called the Alpha Fly from his social media post right. leading up to his actual breaking of the two-hour marathon time. But nobody really knew what the shoe was or what it was about. Right. And, you know, I think Kipchoge had the the um, past breaking two experience of not breaking two. So people were kind of super excited about the fact that he broke the two-hour marathon. But... Um, the Alpha Fly really, I think, the conversation dominates because of what happened the day after Kipchoge broke two hours in the marathon, and that was uh, Kazguy running a two fourteen and you know s- smashing the previous women's world record in the marathon in Chicago, mm-hmm. and she also had on the Alpha Fly. Mm-hmm. Did and she have on Alpha Flies? Did she have on Vapor Flies? I think she had on the. Actually, she might have had on the next percent. Okay. No. I think she did. I think she had on next percent. Yeah. She might have had like a pair of like custom next percents. I think her percents. next percents were custom. Okay, right. So, um, right. I, we're never going to know kind of exactly who's wearing what between the next percent that's commercially available and the Alpha Fly that was on Kipchoge's foot and how Nike might have altered it for Kazguy. Mm-hmm. But um, when you see, you know, the research that has gone into the proven effects of the shoe and how it um, really reduces, you know, running economy. Um, and then you see somebody go out there who's a 217, 218 marathoner and run a 214 in the shoes. It just kind of leaves you wondering. And I think it left everybody wondering because this is all over every media that you can find. I agree. I agree. Yeah. In the lead up to the New York City Marathon today, you know, it's a brilliant race and, and it has some fantastic fields bringing together all these people. And everybody's talking about the shoes. Yeah, I mean, I think Des Linden was quoted as saying something, Not this is not a direct quote, but that it should be a race of who can cover yeah. 26.2 miles fastest on foot and not a, quote, arms race. Yeah, she um, said it should be a foot race, not an not arms race. Not an arms race. race, right. So for the people who aren't Nike athletes and who don't have this shoe on their foot, now a lot of the other brands, Brooks, Saucony, Skechers, you know, they have a prototype out there with a similar carbon plate foam and all of that that we're going to talk about but it's definitely changed the entire picture um it's broken every record you know almost every distance record since it's come out yeah uh from the half marathon up so we've even seen some ultra records broken in it uh it's a fast shoe yeah for sure so let's talk a little bit how they work um and so the the 
I was joking with Michelle earlier this week when we were trading emails that that there's a lot of people that talk about oh well the, you know when you wear carbon springs on your feet of course you can run really fast and and that always annoys me. Anybody starts talking about a carbon spring, I just turn it off. <laughs> or but, you make sure they know it's not an actual spring. <laughs> right, because because, because it, I, it's it's such a ridiculous thing to say. So the 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 carbon plate that's actually in the shoe has gotten a whole lot of attention and so much so that people think oh well you know it's this carbon plate that actually is springing off the ground and is bouncing you down the road. And the carbon plate, as we've talked about on this podcast before, is only responsible for maybe 1% of that 4% efficiency boost that, that you get from, from the Vaporfly 4%. Um, the majority of the, the bonus that you get comes from the foam. The PBAX foam. Uh, the PBAX foam. So um, uh, it refers to the efficiency boost, not the speed boost. Of course, that's worth saying that. But um, the foam has nearly a 90% return rate. And so if you think about like something compresses when you push down on like the foam on your bottom of your shoe, and then how much does the, of that energy does it actually return back to you? Um, most foams return about 65%. So most midsole foams return about 65%. Um, and then the Adidas Boost, which was a big breakthrough when it came out seven or eight years ago, uh, returns about 75%. Uh, PBAX foam returns nearly 90% of the energy comes back up to you. Yeah, just to, you know, give you guys an idea something like the nike zoom streak which is a pretty popular shoe it's got uh the foam is eva based and it has about a 65 percent return and then as george said the boost and the adidas which was a huge deal once it came out um it's tpu based and it's got a return of about 75 percent but you know the carbon fiber plate the PBAX foam, but then the third part is the actual thickness of the midsole, yeah, yeah. Um, and the fact that the PBA, the PBAX foam, it's less dense than either the EVA mm-hmm. or the TPU, mm-hmm. um, so that gives kind of the sh- the shoe more of a like a highly resilient material without adding the weight to it. Right. So you're getting that spring effect, even though it's foam, mm-hmm. um, but you're not adding the weight to the shoes. So I saw a piece that compared, you know. Some it's as if somebody was running with a 100 gram shoe versus a 500 gram mm-hmm. shoe. Right. Um, so it's a significant, significant advantage to the person wearing the shoe. So so you got you got this light foam that gives you all this return and it's super light and so so they can like put a whole bunch of in it. Now the the plate itself does two things. The plate stabilizes the foam because you can imagine that it's so squishy that if you don't have something stiff in there to actually stabilize it, it can completely fall apart. Um, but then it also makes your toe off stiffer. If you think about like your big toe and the way your big toe will bend across the ground, um, your big toe is right over that carbon plate, and so it kind of keeps your big toe straight, and so so it makes it stiffer, which which gives you a little bit of efficiency boost as well. Um, but then the foam, and this so so you have the plate doing those two things. You have the foam, which is the big thing. But then another thing that I hadn't actually considered until just this past week, uh, I was reading a couple things about it. I know you were too, Michelle, about the stack height. Um, and so I have said before on this on this podcast that it's really thick on the bottom of the shoe. It's like 36 millimeters, which is like a maximal stack height, which is kind of similar to the Hoka One Ones. Um, and they look kind of like Hoka One Ones. And I've said before that I feel like running in Hoka One Ones was, was more of a preparation for running in the, the vapor flies than anything else. Um, but that stack height actually gives you a longer effective leg length. Yeah, which can change your stride and can change mm-hmm. your mechanics of running. Um, you know, there's people out there who there's a big, a big, you know, saying out there that this is mechanical doping, but mm-hmm. the, at the same time, the runners aren't cheating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the best piece that we read, which I think is where you're going, mm-hmm. is the piece that called for the regulation in the midsole thickness. Yeah, that's kind of what made the most sense um, because it would regulate the running shoes kind of on the fundamental 
uh, mechanical function as springs versus having to worry about, you know, uh, a standard about technology that is or isn't going to come. So, and by regulating the midsole thickness, you look at the shoes as an entire system. Mm-hmm. You're not just saying you can have a plate, you can't have a plate because plates have been around a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, plates are in spikes. Mm-hmm. We've seen plates come in distance racing shoes that didn't work because it weakened the ankle because the toe off and not having the foam the way that they have it now. So yeah, the midsole thickness is probably the biggest difference as Nike continues to innovate this specific shoe. Right, right. And we'll see if that ends up happening. Um, you know, because they were able to make it so thick, they were able to curve the plate. And and because they're able to curve the plate, that takes some of the stress off your ankle and stuff like that while still giving you that, that stiff toe off. Um, and, and, but I, I, I was just sort of fascinated by this idea of, okay, you're actually increasing the length of someone's legs. I mean, you, you, look, at, you look at really good distance runners, and they tend to have abnormally long legs relative to the rest of their body. Yeah. One of my favorite all-time sporting statistics, I don't even know if you know this, um, is, is comparing the body types of Michael Phelps and Hisham El Garouche. I do not know this. Ma- Michael, <laughs> Michael Phelps and Hisham El Garouche have the same inseam. Um, and so, in other words, their legs are the same length. Um, but Michael Phelps is six four, and Hisham El Garouge is five eight. Yeah, yeah. And so, 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 in other words, that's what eight inches taller than but Michael Phelps is, length. because Michael Phelps has a long body and a certain length right. of legs. He's Hisham El Garouge has has a short torso. That's interesting. Right. right. Um, yeah. And so, so anyway, um, and then it actually has a lot of parallels. A podcast that I know you and I both listened to talked about like comparing emus to, to ostriches. Yeah. And so since ostriches have such longer legs and emus, even though they have similar bodies, ostriches are able to run significantly faster and much more efficiently. Because their legs are long. Because their legs are so long. <laughs> even elephants actually are very efficient. You would not think of them as being efficient when it comes to walking, but they are, um, and it's because their legs are so long. And so the stack height actually gives you a a it, it gives you a, a higher or better effective leg length, and, and thereby makes you faster. It may, means you can lever more power into the ground. Um, the Alpha Flies, those prototypes that that Elliot Kipchoge wore in the 159 Challenge. The stack height on those was like 50. 52 or something? Yeah, it was huge. I mean, and, yeah. he, and he looked like, like standing there, he looked like he was 6'4". Um, he looked, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so so I had never thought about that as being something. And so, so yeah, so Jeff Burns, who is a biomechanicist, uh, biomechanist, that's it, biomechanist at the University of Michigan, uh, wrote a piece in the British Journal for Sports Medicine saying, hey, here's how we can regulate all of this stuff. Because there's a lot of people right now that are saying, hey, you need to get rid of this stuff. Right. Um, but it's hard to do. Like, are you going to get rid of foam in shoes? Well, how do you actually get rid of foam in shoes? Um, I just trim it down. You just don't have a 52-inch stack height. Right. Well, that, and that, that's <laughs> what the suggestion was. But, I mean, you can't just say, oh, we can't have PBAX foam, but it's okay to have EVA and, and, and TPU. But they're not calling for, you know, regulation of not using PBAX. So, but but there are people, and the people would if they understood it better. There are right. people who are calling for, for regulation of the carbon plates. That's because um, I think people, most people don't understand that the shoe in contention is an, a whole system. That's what I'm you saying. You can't have one piece. You can't regulate one piece without the other. The last place I would look to trust on regulation for this is the IAAF. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I can't even imagine that they would understand the intricacies of this shoe. But um, I think the idea with the regulation of you know the midsole thickness is just to define the space on a runner that is mm-hmm. the shoe. Yeah. Um, I think that was kind of the big takeaway from that. And that's what really makes the most sense. It seems that is the most objective way um, to put a worldwide regulation on what, mm-hmm. you know, runners who are wearing this uh, 
or runners might not be allowed to wear this. So right. it, it's also it's also practical in the sense that if, if you were let's say let's let's just say you do what some people are suggesting and you say there can't be any carbon plates in shoes. Um, well, how is a race director going to find out there's a carbon plate in a shoe at the starting line of a race? Yeah. Um, you know, afterwards that would require a race director to, to collect the shoes of the top five finishers and, and put them in a, a CT CAT scan. scan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like how's that going to happen? That's that's a ridiculous thing. It's probably to do. not going to happen. It's, t- it's totally not going to happen. And and it's 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 so it's not only impractical, but it also does, doesn't really address the issue. Um, the plate is not what it's about. There's not a carbon spring in the shoe. The there's pla- no spring. So, so in there's the shoe. there's no spring at all. And so so what it's about is that foam. Um, and so are you going to say, I was talking to somebody earlier this week, a guy I went running with, and he said, well, what if they were to actually um, make a change to, to the, the, how much foam can return? Like, and so, so they were to cap that through, they would say, like, whatever the coefficient of return or whatever the, the physical term is for that, if they were to cap that at 80. And I was like, all right, that's still like really, really You're still dealing difficult more with, to do. you know, the foam itself there and the technology of the foam. And mm-hmm. that is probably going to be really hard to prove and to maintain regulation over. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I think while there's a lot of things that sound like they would be good ideas and easy to implement, you know, it's going to be a pretty difficult thing um, if we actually see it come into play. So so two other things kind of that, that people have been saying that I, that I want to make sure that we address is talking about this. One is, is um, a lot of people are saying, well, you still have to run. So there's a lot of people that are, that are saying this is going to this is going to stifle technology and technology. You know, we, we, we should we should make sure we're paying attention to technology and, and, and encouraging advance in technology. And so if you were to say, well, there's no more carbon plates, or you were to say these shoes are illegal or whatever happens to be, that would be stifling technological innovation. And after all, you still have to run. It's still about the runners. It's not as if if you and I went out and put on the Alpha Fly, we'd be able to run 159.40, right? Um, that's true, but there's still some free speed in there. Yeah, I think the problem with saying we still have to run is that when you have a shoe that's gone through multiple, um, you know, labs of testing, and and this is not testing for marketing or promotional stuff. These are real, you know, research science-based studies, and it is proven that the shoe, you know, reduces the amount of energy or oxygen that the runner needs to run at a given speed. Um, the shoe has something to do with it. So mm-hmm. you still have to run, but if you have something on your body that's going to help you, you know, run x minutes faster in a marathon just because of the shoe then that's the problem there Um, because it's never going to be apples to apples you know they made a a great comparison now about what we've seen in marathon times and the way that the world records have fallen over the past three years Uh, what used to be fast is now good what used to be world class is now fast and what used to be world record pace is now just world class Um, so we're seeing a huge shift in that so yeah you still have to run but these shoes are helping them run significantly faster by working either just as hard or not not as hard as they would without these shoes on. And and I think that what you just mentioned with the times, I feel like that's the reason why one people are so fired up about it and two They should be. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and two why the breakdowns to triathlon and cycling happen. Or, or why I don't think that you can download necessarily directly from, from cycling and triathlon. So we'll talk about that second point in a minute. But the first one, running really, really matter. I mean, running times really, really matter. Um, you know, and there's, there's this really good passage from Once a Runner, which I know you haven't read, Michelle, um, <laughs> in, which, in which they're having a conversation at a bar, and the guy says, uh, the lead character, who has the same name as my son, Quentin, um, <laughs> says, says um, 
I know exactly how I stack up versus a whole bunch of people in the country. Not only that, but I know exactly how I stack up to people historically. Um, and he said, and that's a big part of what makes running interesting. Um, and and this is messing with that. It's um, distorting so, so, it, I would say. And so, so if, if you look at, okay, what, what did I run a couple weeks ago in, in uh, Skechers Hyperburst um, versus what somebody else ran uh, wearing Vaporflies. Can you compare those and, and, and know exactly how we stack up versus one another? Did you like those shoes, by the so, way? So they're interesting. They're interesting. Yeah, okay. uh, we can talk more about them in just a second <laughs> if you want to. But, um, but, but you can't quite stack it up. What's more, like if you look at what, say, Kipchoge ran, breaking, you know, running 159.40, can you look at that and say, wow, that's really good. That's so much faster than what so-and-so ran when they ran the Chicago Marathon wearing um, Adidas Adi Zeros, right? You, you can't really make that comparison anymore. Um, and, and that kind of messes with that. And I think that's one reason why people are so fired up about it. What do you think? I would agree. You know, the research has shown that without the shoes, that 159 you know, is more like a 202, 203. Um, Cosguy had never really come under 217 and she put on these shoes and, you know, ran what, 214, 41 or 214.0 something. 214.0 something, sorry. Um, And every other person that we had ever seen try to attempt to get closer to 215 before this uh, both failed and at some point was probably busted for some type of doping. Mm -hmm. Um, So the times are are relevant and, and they're shocking and especially in the women's uh, foot race, you know, the research shows that the 214 is really only equivalent to a 218 or a 219 mm-hmm. uh, based on the shoes that she was wearing. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty dramatic. A 218 or a 219 in Chicago is is give or take for several African runners. Mm-hmm. So Right on, right on. The second thing that people are pointing at when they're talking about the technological innovation is they point at like triathlon and cycling. And they say, look at triathlon and cycling. They don't tend to stifle technology in those, and and the equipment matters, and not everybody has the same equipment when they're doing the Tour de France, and not everybody has the same equipment when it comes to triathlon. Um, That is not a good comparison. And I'm saying that as somebody who has been a cyclist and somebody who has been a triathlete, that's not a good comparison. And there's two big reasons why. One is because in triathlon and in cycling, times don't matter like this. Like, times just don't matter. Right. Um, you know, okay, so Jan Frodeno won Kona and and set a course record and do it. That's great. Fantastic. Set a course record. That should be called the course record. Um, but but for the most part, from race to race and from place to place, what matters in, in triathlons is who place. wins. Right. Not not who actually goes goes the fastest, right? It just doesn't matter as much. Right. Um, in cycling, it doesn't matter at all. It's all about who wins. Um, when I was a bike racer, I used to call up my dad, and he, after a race, he'd say, oh, what you up to this weekend? I said, well, I had a bike race this morning. And he'd say, how far was it? I'd say, it was about you know 67 miles. And he'd go, what was your time? And I was like, <laughs> I don't know, Dad, because uh, time just doesn't matter. I won, though. Isn't that great? Yeah. You know, because all that matters is, is, is who wins, who crosses the finish line first. Um, and so... This this obsession, not obsession, but but this focus that we have on time and running, they don't have that in triathlon and cycling, and so so you can't really make those comparisons, or at least you can't download them directly. Um, the other thing is that in both triathlon and in cycling, having the best equipment is kind of part of it, and and that's part of being a good triathlete is having good equipment. Part of being a good uh, cyclist is choosing the right equipment that works for you. Um, and and ensuring that you're you're using it correctly on race day, like that's not 
that's not a fundamental part of running. Like choosing yeah. choosing for and paying for the right equipment um, and using it properly, that's just not what we really do in running. Yeah, we don't really have any equipment. Yeah, so. yeah. and so, so so this idea around, around oh, well, in, in triathlon and in cycling, they don't stifle innovation this way. It's just you can't make that comparison. You can't make that comparison. I can't really make a big comparison anyway because take I'm more not word qualified for it. to take more word for it. talk about Kona and cycling, but yeah. <laughs> take, take, take more word for it. Um, uh, Jan Frodeno, by the way, when he won uh, and set the course record in Kona a couple weeks ago, was wearing a pro- pair of prototype Asics, which evidently had a carbon plate in them. I did read that. <coughs> so so I hear. Um, all right. Um, what else do we want to say about it? I have a couple more things I want to say about it. What else do you have to say? I feel like we're kind of all over the place in saying that, but that's okay. This is your postmodern edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Keep going. <laughs> Um, <coughs> there's so many other things that we could talk about. What do you want to talk about? Okay, you I, have two specific ones. So I, I, I have, I have a couple of specific ones. All right. So, so here's one thing I want to talk about in the very first study that they did with, um, with the university of Colorado that found that 4%, Correct. there was also a couple of smaller findings in there that didn't get a whole lot of hype. Um, and I wanted to mention them real quick. And it's just because we've kind of rethrown ourselves back into this whole Vaporfly shoe conversation that I happened to happen to hear them. One of them is that people get people who get advantaged by the shoes. You get a greater advantage if one, you're a heel striker, correct, and two, if you have low ground contact time. Yep. Good to know. Yeah, um, you know, I think it's uh, it's interesting because one of the things that. Uh, that Shalane said that if she could have changed with her mechanics mm-hmm. would be the way that uh, her foot strikes. Mm-hmm. But because, you know, she's a heel striker and she's kind of pound for pound, you know, kind of at the top of the field, the shoes, the shoes really help her with that. Right. Um, so, so they gave her more of an advantage more than they would have given somebody than else. Somebody who might be a midfoot or four foot striker. Right. So, right. Um, so, and, and, and that kind of says also, it, it sort of suggests like when it comes to ground contact time, it sort of suggests that possibly you can learn to use the shoes. You can kind of educate yourself on the best way to use the shoes. Yeah, I think the danger with that, though, you know, we're seeing is we don't have good research to show whether running marathons, that type of impact in this type of shoe leads to any kind of long-term issue. That was the second I want to talk about. Oh, okay. So we're on the same page here. We didn't even know it. (laughs) Um, The people that we've seen, you know, dominate marathoning the last few years and, and dominate the American scene have all been wearing the shoe and they've had some pretty big surgeries. Right. They've had some pretty big injuries. Galen right. Rupp, Jordan Hase, Amy Craig, you know, Shalane just did her knees. Um, so we're seeing some world-class performances, but the question is, you know, is training and, and running at your peak level in these shoes altering the natural body mechanics to a point where people are suffering injuries that are keeping them out of the sport for six nine 12 months right um i think it'll be a few more years before we can really pinpoint that yeah and there, there, there's no good research on that and so it's more of a philosophical question right now um uh you know jeff burns who the guy we were talking about who, who wrote the the piece saying that we should regulate stack height in the british journal of sports medicine um he said that he has sort of a guiding mantra that that you can't beat mother nature and so if you're really trying to alter the way that people's feet interacts with the ground when they're running it's going to ultimately cause issues. Yeah, um, those people are going to be in trouble. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a that's a really really important thing to consider um, because as we've talked about before, it's not just the elites that are wearing these. If you look at places fifty through one hundred at, at the New York City Marathon today, 
you know, the 50th finisher to the 100th finisher today. Of those 50 people, how many of you do you think were wearing vapor flies? At least 38. Yeah. <laughs> interesting very precise prediction but, but 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 i agree with you i i, I think 80 percent so so, so so it does uh, but but I, but i would say it's probably at least between 30 and 40 yeah um and and it's it's kind of incredible i mean you in particularly when the vapor flies the four percent came out with those bright colors i mean they stand out so much literally the starting line you would see the same shoes all the way across the starting line um it's it's incredible the way they they have dominated the the sub-elite ranks well everybody wants to know is this shoe going to actually make me faster Mm -hmm. am i going to be able to run my marathon pr faster Mm -hmm. and not maybe even be as fit or just as fit but the shoes are going to help me get there right so if you're not getting them for free most people are finding a way to buy them and at least try them out yeah so yeah i know so this the ceo at nike has stepped down he's still gonna be the head of the board of directors they're shuttering the nike oregon project I'm still having a moral conundrum with whether I'm going to be wearing the vapor flies in my next big marathon. So do you need um, to talk about your experience in the shoes that you bought to possibly replace I have, the vapor I have, flies? I have, bought, I have bought two pairs of shoes to possibly <laughs> replace the vapor flies so far. Um, one of them was the, the Skechers... Hyper, what's it Hyper called? Hyperburst? No, the Skechers Razor 3. Okay. And, they're, and they're, made, they're made with a foam they that they call Hyperburst. Hyperburst yeah, and they're very interesting, actually. The Hyperburst, it's a plastic that then, then heat up, and it creates this big thing that feels like you're running on styrofoam. It feels like a, like a like a, a combination between styrofoam and memory foam. You know, the stuff that's like in your bed Correct. or in some people's beds? Yeah. Um, that, that like your foot goes into it and you kind of feel your foot making an indention in the foam. Are you feeling that every single foot strike? I, I felt for I, 10 miles. If I paid attention to it, I could have. So but. the thing that I loved about my experience in the Vaporfly was you just don't even think about your feet. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is cool. Yeah. I, I noticed it because I was actually paying attention to it because I was actually like, okay, let's see if I like these shoes. Okay. The other one I felt I, I bought, and you're going to have to help me remember the name, the Rebrock Run Fast Float Ride. Float Ride Run Fast? Float Ride Run Fast. But right. that's not a shoe for Reebok has the worst names right now, by the way. Reebok and New Balance have the worst names. Reebok's every single one of their shoes Float Ride something. is, is named, it's, it's like six words that they turn into a different combination. Right. But that shoe <laughs> oh. is not your shoe for a marathon you're not wearing that you don't think so no all right so yeah I, there's I don't not know. enough to it it's a yeah. it's a workout shoe um so it was it's it, it's interesting because it, it was a little bit heavier but it feels snappy and racy you're not going 26 miles in that shoe. i don't know if i am or not you're, we'll see yeah well, I, got, I, got, I got a few months until the tokyo marathon to get it figured out so so i will definitely keep everybody updated not it's only not a marathon not a- shoe. <laughs> let's just be very specific here this reebok model that we both have that we both just bought and got a great deal on is not a marathon specific. Well, then what is it? It is like maybe up to a half marathon. It is an up-tempo track workout shoe. So you think it's too slight for a marathon? I think you saying? need to get in touch with your friends who used to be sponsored by Reebok and get a little bit more information on this shoe. Okay. And uh, you'll right. see that I'm right. <laughs> what? But so, but so what's your point that it's not a marathon shoe? What kind of shoe is it? I mean, it just there's just not enough to it in order okay. to go the distance. It's too slight. Yeah, All right. All right. I Fair. just there's no there's no cushioning, there's no stability. Fair. I don't think, I don't know that anybody runs the marathon in this shoe. Yeah. I don't think you want to be Fair. out there in this shoe. Well, de- I, I definitely don't want to run something that's not shoe enough because uh, you know I'm 45 years old now, and uh, the the absolute lightest shoes are not necessarily the the best shoes for right. me. And you also need to be able to turn around from Tokyo and be ready for Boston. And then turn around from Boston and be ready for Berlin. Okay. 2020 is going to be awesome. <laughs> Got to buy a lot of shoes. My wife's probably already tuned out, so that's probably good. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody, to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Michelle, thanks for being here. Thanks, George.
Talk to you next time. That'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching Performance, by Blue Pineapple Travel, and by SlayRx. If you want to reach out to me, you can always find me, George, at ITOcoaching.com. If you want to reach out to Patrick, it's Patrick at ITOcoaching.com. Or you can send us a podcast email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. If you want to find ITO Coaching and Performance, they're at itocoaching.com, on Twitter at itocoaching, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash performance. If you want to find Blue Pineapple Travel for all your travel needs, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. See all the incredible places where folks are traveling thanks to Blue Pineapple Travel. And, of course, our newest sponsor, SlayRx. You can find them at SlayRx.com, at Facebook.com slash SlayRx, or on Instagram at Instagram.com, here for, the number four, here for SlayRx. Don't forget the discount code as well, Pleasant2019. That'll get you 10% off anything at their website. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.